Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined by fellow co-host Joe Wolfond. We back, baby. We are back, baby. I feel like, you know, in NBA terms, it's like star player was out six to eight weeks with a uh, serious yet non-debilitating knee injury or something, and they've, they've made it back just in time for the stretch run and the playoffs. Hope you're in game shape, Wolfon. Yeah, serious but non-debilitating sleep deprivation is how I would describe it. But uh, no, I, I'm I'm really excited. I mean... Like I said before, I took the time off. I was basically just skipping the dog days of the season, which worked out pretty well for me. I'm just jumping back in here when things are uh, starting to get really exciting again. So it's good to be back. Uh, good to be back on, I was going to say the airwaves. I don't know. What, what, it's not exactly the airwaves. What would you call it? The, the, the iTunes library. Good to be back <laughs> yeah. in the iTunes library with you. That's what it is. Uh, we'll, we'll do our usual fan shout out at the end of the show, but I did want to uh, quickly mention Florent, Muhammad, Jonathan, Ewan, Vivek, Alex, S, a bunch of other people that, that commented positively to even just the announcement of your pending return this week. So the people are excited, Joe. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that just speaks to what a terrible job you did uh, hosting the show in my absence, you know? <laughs> They're just that excited for me to get back and stabilize things. It was uh, it was rough sledding trying to fill trying to fill six to seven weeks without you. I think I think yeah. we did an admirable job. Uh, shout out to all of the guests we had, despite uh, Joe's opinions of you. No, I uh, I'm obviously uh, being facetious. You did a great job. I listened to all of the episodes and enjoyed all of them immensely. So that's a credit to you and a credit to Mason Ginsburg, Trill Bro Dude, Chico Nacion. Uh, Will Lou, am I forgetting anybody? Every, everybody Matt Bonner. On. Matt Bonner, my God, yes. Yeah. Uh, hopefully he's listening. And yeah. uh, a shout out to, to Matt Bonner for coming on and doing a great job sharing some Greg Popovich stories. I enjoyed that episode a lot. Um, so yeah, man, kudos to you for for holding it down. And uh, here we are, ready for, <laughs> for the stretch run and the postseason. Unbelievable. Yes, sir. I'm excited. And today's episode, we're going to, we're kind of, going to break down the Eastern Conference and where the top teams or, you know, the playoff play-in teams stand um, and stack up against each other going into the playoffs. But before we do that, Wolfon, I do have to say, I mean, the, the obvious question here that everyone wants to know now that you're back is have you been watching Alexei Pukashevsky? <laughs> uh, I know you know the answer to this question. So, uh, no, like I, I have started kind of keying back in over the last couple of weeks and watching a lot of games again so that I wasn't going to be like totally lost when I jumped back in here. Like I really wanted to get back up to speed and unfortunately getting back up to speed did not include getting back up to speed on the Oklahoma city thunder. And it's look, most of the time during the regular season, I like to watch pretty much every team, even the teams that have no hope of making the playoffs that are in rebuild mode. Like, obviously, I want to watch those teams and see how their young players are progressing and if there's a vision there and what the future might look like. But in this case, I really did want to take a break. And so for the first few weeks that I was off, I did step away uh, and not watch very much basketball at all. So 
as I've started to ratchet it back up over the last couple of weeks, I really have made a point of focusing on the teams that we are going to be watching in the spring. And that doesn't include OKC. And that's, it's not going to be like that most years, you know, most years I I am still going to uh, pay at least token attention to lottery bound teams, even down the stretch um, because those teams are still going to shape the future of the league in some form or fashion. But no, uh, in this case, I haven't been watching the thunder. Uh, I've been keeping up with their box scores, I guess, to a certain extent. And I know Poku's put together a decent run of games here. So I guess congratulations, <laughs> but uh, I mean, is there is there anything in particular that's jumped out to you about the way that he's been playing recently where you're like, okay, that, that feels sustainable or this feels real. This is something that he's going to carry over. Like what exactly is it about the way that he's been playing that has you feeling optimistic right now? I really think it's his playmaking. The numbers across the board are like solid uh, since February 5th when he returned to the lineup from, from a G League stint. And oddly enough, like he did not, in any way, shape, or form, light it up in the G League. It's not like he went down there, you know, killed it, and it was like, all right, he got, he did what he was supposed to do against non-NBAers, now he's back. Like, he didn't actually play that well in the G League, but he took something from that stint, it seemed, because since he's been back, he's just looked so much more comfortable. And, like, I know you you mentioned a couple of times when I um, half-heartedly, but somewhat seriously also mentioned, like, him being a potential breakout player and how high I was on him. And you mentioned very correctly that, both last year and even early this year, like he was in the argument for the worst player in the NBA, or at least the worst player getting minutes in the NBA. That I would say, like, definitely not the case. I, like, for two months now, he's looked, I think, like a solid enough young rotation player. And I think that is actually a monumental leap given how bad or like how out of place he looked before that. And I think it's especially fascinating when a guy with the combination of his size and skill set and his age, he's still younger than some prospects coming into the draft this year, make that leap. I think that's um, big. But yeah, I think the playmaking to me is what stands out because it's not just that he's now putting up, I think he's averaging about 3.6 assists during this like two month stretch, which isn't nothing. Um, The turnovers can still be up there, but I think uh, for the last two months, it's 3.6 assists, 2.1 turnovers, but it's not just like the number. It's for me, the comfort and like the reads he's making, he's finding cutters off the ball. Yeah. Okay. He's throwing the odd, like fancy behind the back pass to or some ridiculous bounce passes in transition, but it's, it's the variety of passes he's making. He's uh, throwing skip passes like cross court. He, like I said, he's finding cutters on the baseline. Uh, he's finding guys in transition. It, it, like the comfort with which he's making reads and the poise just seems, he really does look like a completely different player. Uh, total numbers for these two months, 12 points, 6.9 rebounds, 3.6 assists, 52% shooting from two point range, 34% from three, 78% free throw uh, shooting. And, and yeah, the, my favorite Poku stat before we get to the point of this podcast, which is breaking down the East and, and I finish updating you on why you should finally believe in Alexei Pokashevsky after your two months off. But my favorite Poku stat, uh, and one that actually shocked the hell out of even me, is if you look at uh, since he rejoined the lineup and started playing pretty solidly on February 5th, the Thunder are plus two in the 689 minutes he's played and minus 243 in the 622 minutes he's been on the bench. Of the 15 Thunder players that have played at least 100 minutes during that time, everyone else's plus minus ranges from minus 14 to minus 205. I don't think that's nothing. When every you know every other player is a minus, they are just absolutely atrocious, obviously. And they've actually treaded water 
um, with him on the court, which coincides with this two-month stretch of him actually looking like a decent young rotation player. So anyway, that was just my long-winded way of welcoming you back to the show and letting you know that despite when you left the show, it looked like me picking Pokashevsky as a breakout player might have been the worst prediction in Pound the Rock history. I can now confidently say, Joe Wolfon, that Pokashevsky is better than Chuma Okiki, who is your <laughs> who was your breakout choice. Uh, it took it took a while to get here. I, here I'm still are. okay. I'm still high on Chuma. And by the way, with Poku, it's like I, I my take was never that he was bad and going to stay bad. Um, I, I have certainly always left the door open for the possibility that he could grow into a good player. I just thought he was really far away and that you were overly optimistic about the timeline with which, you know, he was going to grow into the player that you believe he can be. So happy for you that, that he's put together this run of games and I can't wait uh, for you to pick him as a breakout player for the third year in a row next year. That'll be fun. Um, but yeah, it's been a tough season for Chuma. But I, I still I still like him as a player, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah. I think he's still been really good. Uh, even though like I haven't really been keeping up with the Magic games down the stretch of this season yeah. either. But uh, I, I am happy that you mention what was previously one of the worst predictions in Pound the Rock history because I think we now have a new candidate. Lakers? Well, that, yes. <laughs> But I, I don't want to talk about the Lakers. I think we've talked about them enough this season. Uh, I even jumped back onto the podcast during my hiatus to talk yes. about the Lakers. So yeah. they are done. Okay. Not another so word about what's, them. What's the, new, what's the new worst prediction in Pound the Rock? So before the season, one of your bold predictions was that the Celtics were going to break up the Jason Tatum-Jalen Brown duo this season. Not only did you make that prediction, you then took a victory lap Correct. On that prediction midseason. I'm moonwalking around the track right now, <laughs> retracing my steps of that victory lap. So I, if that wasn't one of the worst or well, the well, worst predictions in Pound the Rock history, it was certainly the most unwarranted and in hindsight worst victory laps that have ever been taken on yeah. this podcast. I, I think, why, why don't we just use this as a segue, though, because yes. we're going to be talking about like contenders in the East and who's going to win the East, which is like the big overarching question, I guess, that I have, and which is why I wanted to do this episode coming back, because I think that's the biggest question that I have, the biggest big picture question that I have about the league right now, is who's coming out of the East. So I do think Boston's in this mix. Obviously, they took a big hit with Rob Williams yes. going down. But I got to ask, where you're at with the Celtics now uh, now that they've won like what 25 of their last 30 yeah. games or something like that since best, you took that victory left best team in the league since New Year's best defense by a mile since mm -hmm. New Year's number four offense since New Year's it's not like they're just getting by on defense the only thing I'll say um, and look fair enough I I was wrong um, can't, can't be right all the time or even 60% of the time, but, um, no, but the one thing I will say with the Celtics, if I remember correctly, though, I did take the victory lap hundred percent, I believe my preseason bold prediction. And the reason I took the victory lap when I did was my prediction was not necessarily that they were going to break them up, but that a season of discontent would lead to rumor that like they were going to break them or that would lead to rumors or whatever that Jalen Brown was on the trade block or that they were considering it. I took the victory lap when it did look like they were in the midst of that season of discontent and when rumors did start to come out that it might be a possibility. So 
was my victory lap uh, premature? And as I said, did I have to moonwalk around the track after taking that lap? Absolutely, goddamnly. But again, the the bold take wasn't necessarily that they're going to trade him. It was that I believed they would have this disappointing season that would lead to him being in trade rumors. It was half correct. They self corrected. They're awesome. But to your point and to your question of um, who's going to win the East and the Celtics place in it, look, I think if they were healthy, they are obviously in the mix. I do think the Robert Williams injury is just a killer for them. And if it was like a couple weeks and it's like, well, maybe he can get back for the playoffs. I think that's different. They put a six to eight week timeline on it um, just about a week ago. Or so it, basically the way it works is like, if he's back in that timeline, he's going to be back either late April or mid May. So he's going to miss the first round, maybe the first two rounds. I think that's too much to overcome in an Eastern conference that is as like top heavy and compact and as deep as this, this East is like in previous years, a team like Boston, they get a top four seed. You probably think they don't need a Robert Williams in the first round. I'm not sure that's the case this year. And I, I think they would definitely need him by the second round. Like they're, they're not getting to the conference finals if he doesn't play the first. Yeah, two rounds. Okay. But so let's say he is back for the second round though. I mean, do you think like they're looking at being a, t- they're going to be a top four seed. So, yeah, but- so who's beating them in the first round? Like Chicago's not beating them in the no. first round. I don't think Toronto's beating them in the first you, round. You don't think the Raptors can, can beat them without Robert Williams? Can yes. Would I predict it to happen? No, I would not. Okay, so fair enough. But I it's still say it's more likely than not that they wind up in the second round. What about regardless. Brooklyn? You don't think you don't think Brooklyn with KD and Kyrie can beat this Celtics team with without Robert Williams? Again, like it's it's certainly possible. Uh, I would still pick Boston in that series. I think in order for that to happen, because I don't think Boston's getting up to one. Like Miami's got, I think, a two and a half game edge now for the number one seed. So. Yeah that would require the Nets to get up to seventh, right. which I which, think is not that it's impossible, but like they, they'd have to get into the seven, eight before they get right. Yeah. They exactly. can't do it They're, from where they are now. They can't do it from where they are now. Uh, and even then, I mean, I guess actually if they, if they did get up to the seven, eight, then they're probably winning that game. Cleveland's super, super vulnerable yeah. right now. So, um, so yeah, that could happen, but no, I think it's still more likely than not that Boston gets to the second round. At which point, maybe he's back. So, yes, it's a killer. Um, but I certainly think they're good enough without him to get through a first-round series against any of those teams. And then, obviously, it depends on how physically fit he is when he gets back. But we've seen guys play through meniscus injuries in the playoffs yeah. before. And I mean, and Embiid last year, right? Was still a, an absolute monster. And to be fair, it's it's different. Like Embiid is not as dependent on athleticism and specifically vertical athleticism as Robert Williams is. But I, I mean, I still think we have to consider them a contender, a team 100%. that could get out of the Eastern Conference. So, would you would you pick them to beat any of Philly, Milwaukee, or Miami without Robert Williams? Not can they? Would you pick them to beat? any of those three teams, if you knew Robert Williams was not going to be back for that series? I think that I'd have to think about the specific matchups in a little bit more detail, but I could see them knocking off the heat without him. Um, But again, I I think I would just have to to dig into it a little bit more. But like, I don't, even then, even against Philly, man, I, I feel like it's probably closer to a coin flip than like an overwhelming 
Philly favorite in that matchup. Like, I think yeah. they have the goods to do it. The, the, the thing that really worries me, I mean, we, we can talk all about the impact of losing Robert Williams. I feel like everybody pretty much knows at this point what they've lost, right? Like they lose one of their defensive pillars uh, and they're going to One really of their feel- two defensive player of the year candidates. Yeah. And like the guy who anchors it, uh, you know, on the back line, right? Like they, that's a huge loss on defense and, and they're going to really feel his, ab- his absence on offense too. Even though he's super low usage, uh, just because they don't have anyone who can remotely replicate his role gravity. And this is a team that we know struggles to put pressure on the rim. And even though he only averages like six field goal attempts a game, he still applies that pressure just by virtue of the threat that he poses as a dive man. Like that is still rim pressure of a sort, even if he's not finishing a ton of possessions out of the pick and roll and it can help collapse a defense. It can open up skip passes. It can open up baseline cuts. Uh, and he's a really good, you know, connective passer too. Uh, less so on the short roll, I would say than just kind of like operating at the top of the floor or from the elbow, but like, uh, he can be a good connector. So I think they're going to feel his absence on both sides of the ball. But maybe like just as important as all that, I feel like what maybe concerns me the most is like how thin they're stretched right now because like they were already a pretty top-heavy team, but this is going to challenge their depth in a whole new way. And people can say depth doesn't matter that much in the playoffs and like that's true to an extent. But I feel like that applies more to like your number nine to 12 guys. Whereas like your six through eight guys are still super important. And for Boston right now, that's Daniel Tice. Uh, And and I know Tice has been starting, but I consider Derek White part of the top five. And like, he's the guy who's going to close games for them. Right. So um, Tice, Grant Williams and Peyton Pritchard is like their six through eight. Right. Which is fine, I guess. Like Pritchard and, and Grant Williams have actually been shooting the lights out. I think by yeah. percentage, they're the two best three point shooters yep. on the team. Um, and, and Grant has just been like all around good this year. Right. Like super stout defender who fits into that switching scheme really well. They have him guard centers a lot of the time, um, you know, previously so that they could have Rob Williams roaming off the ball. Um, and I actually... I don't know if you remember, but like a, a few weeks back, the game they played against the Sixers where they absolutely beat the Sixers down. Grant, yeah. Grant Williams was like the primary on Embiid. And obviously, like there's a lot of help uh, going into that. But as the primary on Embiid, I thought he did a pretty damn good job. So um, so he's been good. But yeah, like Pritchard, I don't think is reliable. Like Tice is fine. Um, I, I would still consider depth a big weakness for this team, especially if you compare it to, say you know, Milwaukee or Miami. Um, I, I think if you if you stack up that six through eight against Philly, then it still it still looks pretty good. Yeah. Like that's the one the one contender here that I would think uh is even more top heavy than Boston is. But that's a big concern for me here in losing Rob Williams is, is it just thins them out uh, and I don't know that they can afford to be thinned out uh more than they already were. The core defense is still good enough, and the combination of that defense with a guy like Tatum, who has taken the full-fledged superstar leap now, like he he's taken leaps in other years. You could have called him a fringe superstar, but I, like he's taken the full superstar leap this year. And I think having a player that good that can do what he does and get you the shots he does on the offensive end with an elite defense, you give yourself a chance every night, and you give yourself a chance in every playoff series with or without Robert Williams. I do think it will catch up to them eventually probably by the second round 
if not at the very like latest if they didn't have him or they didn't have him at 100% like by the conference finals. I don't think they can get through the East without Robert Williams pretty close to 100%. But they're good enough. Tatum's good enough. I think they, Coach Udoka and, and the whole team, I guess, and Tatum himself and Brown have figured out a pretty um, good balance in the offense now you know early in the year it was a lot of isoing and, and everyone else standing around I think the ball movement's been better Tatum and Brown I think have played off each other better in the last couple months I just think they found like a really nice balance and rhythm and flow to the offense while obviously having this elite defense so they're going to compete on any given night they can yeah. beat anyone in a playoff series with or without Williams I do think it'll catch up to them the depth is an issue and I do think look I know one of the like kind of debates right now, because Marcus Smart is in the defensive player of the year category, is like the Smart versus Williams on their own team. I still think Williams is the more valuable defender overall to really? the Celtics. I, I think it's close. I would give Williams the, the edge. I don't want to like put it all just on, on this number because I think there's more that goes into it. But I do also think it's interesting that like if you look at the numbers when Smart is on mm-hmm. and Williams is off, the defensive rating is still good. It's like 107 points, something that would still be like a top five defense. You look at the numbers when Williams is on and Smart is off, the defensive rating is like 103, which would be like three points better than anyone else. It would still be the best. And again, I'm I'm not saying that's the be-all end-all. I do think when it's as close as it is between those two guys, that is a pretty important number. Anyway, either way, I think they're good enough to, to make noise in the playoffs with or without them. I don't think... They're good enough. And I don't think the East is weak enough anymore where you can just look at a team like the Celtics and say they don't need Robert Williams to get through the East. They do need him to get through the East. Yeah. Well, this is part of the reason I wanted to have this conversation. What I think is interesting about the East, like we've been talking all year about how the East is so much better this year than it's been in the past. And what I think is actually the case is like the East is way deeper in terms of quality teams than it's been in the past. Like we're talking about 10 teams that are probably going to finish above 500, right? And I I haven't actually looked, but I really wonder how far back you'd have to go and if you would even find a season Maybe not. In, which, in which 10 teams in the Eastern Conference had above 500 records. Like certainly in the amount of time that I've been seriously following basketball, which is basically around like the lockout shortened 98-99 season, I think you could probably go back that far and not find a season with that many 500 or better teams in the East. Like a quarter century almost. Yeah. So deeper, yes. But at the top, I mean, it's like these teams are all good, but like they're not that good. And I think that's... Dude, you can, every, you can say on the You one almost hand, got to a point where no team in the East won 50 games this year. Like the top four seeds are all jostling for the one seed and they're gonna the one seed is going to finish with like 51, 52 wins. Yeah, the one seed is blatantly fraudulent. <laughs> And we'll get to that. But I think on the one hand, you can say, okay, in this Eastern Conference, I don't think that the Celtics can afford to lose a guy like Robert Williams. And on the other hand, you can say in this Eastern Conference, maybe the Celtics can afford to lose a guy like Robert Williams, right? Because I don't, you know, we can talk about the Bucks, who I think are the closest thing to like a juggernaut that exists in this conference. But even they, I think, are beatable. And so I, I... don't think you can rule them out because I do think at the top, it's despite the depth of the conference, I don't know that it's as strong at the top as it's been uh, in some past years. But I mean, the, the last thing I'll say uh, just about their defense and about the, the the smart versus Robert Williams thing, which I think is interesting. Um, you know, I've said before, I feel like sometimes the the best 
uh, interior defense is a good perimeter defense. Yeah. I think in large part, that's true of the Celtics this year, who like a, a big part of their defensive success is just the incredible job they do at preventing opponents from getting to the rim. Uh, I think only the Warriors do a better job of that. And smart is a huge part of that, you know, whether it's just like stopping the ball at the point of attack, or we talk about their switchability and, and Robert Williams' switchability is a big part of that. You know, we think about what he can do against guards on the front end of those switches, but you know, we, we maybe don't talk as much about what Marcus smart can do on the back end of those switches and why that makes it work. Um, whether it's just like banging with bigger guys in the post uh, and not giving up any position or just like how attentive he is and how active and, and quick he is about executing those scram switches so that he's not stuck on a bad matchup down there. And just in general, I think one, one thing that makes me feel like this Celtics defense is just still going to be ironclad is the benefits of having super switchable guards who can really defend up the positional spectrum and handle almost anyone in isolation, especially if that switch is happening at the top of the floor. So like when him and Derek White are on the floor together, right? I think with the rise of like point forwards and just all manner of jumbo sized playmakers around the league, which in the East you're talking about, you know, Giannis, Katie, uh, Siakam, Jimmy Butler, I guess, although he's a little bit smaller than those guys. Um, I, I'd throw Tatum in that group, but obviously the, the Celtics don't have to worry about defending him. But I think what we're seeing more and more with that player type is like teams are running a lot of inverted pick and roll with those bigger guys handling the ball and guards screening for them. And I think having smart and white out there at the same time really takes the teeth out of those actions because the Celtics can just switch it and feel pretty okay about the ensuing matchup there with the possible exception of KD who can like just shoot over top of either of those guys. And the Nets do run a lot of inverted pick and roll with KD, right? With, with shooters screening for him and either ghosting or flaring out to the three point line. And I still think even in that situation, the Celtics are probably living with just switching that rather than putting two on the ball and risking letting that shooter slip free or having to engage a third defender and then putting themselves in rotation. Like that's, that's a big defensive advantage. And it's one that I like not really any other teams in the East um, can replicate. Like the Raptors are pretty stout with, with Fred and Gary Trent, but like I, Trent is not nearly on the same level as those other three guys, I don't think. And then with Chicago, it's like when they're healthy, they have Lonzo and Caruso who can do that. But then you can also just attack DeRozan and Levine, which you can't do with anybody else in the Celtics. So I really think um, it's kind of like that. That's what's unique about Boston and their defense. I think when they put those two guys out on the floor together. And I think a lot of the teams that rely on inverted pick and roll are going to struggle to figure out how to attack that Celtics defense. What makes it so unique? I think there are teams and there are defensive backcourts who can hold their own against switches. And there are, you know, plenty of defensive backcourts that are really good on the perimeter and really active and, and getting their hands in and disrupting passing lanes. I don't think there is another defensive backcourt in the league like Smart and White who are equally equipped to do both. Like can absolutely wreak havoc on the opposing backcourt for a full 40 minutes or however long they're out there, but can also, as you mentioned, hold their own on those inverted pick and rolls or just switching in general 
and just take away so much of what an opposing team wants to do offensively in any setting, but then also in a traditional setting, just reap absolute havoc on opposing guards and on just a team trying to initiate their offense. Yeah. Um, that stuff. And by the way, and by the way, protect the rim too. Like, yes, I, yes. You, you will not find a better rim protecting backcourt than yeah. what you get with those two guys. And that can come in the form of like taking charges, which they're both incredible at. Uh, and that's just, you know, like weak, like quick weak side rotations where they're getting in the way of somebody either like driving or rolling to the rim. Uh, and it's also like verticality. Like Derek White is like maybe the single best shot blocking guard in the league. Smart does a really good job of getting vertical. Like obviously it's not like, you know, a foundation of their defense. Like you're not getting a ton of rim protection. Those guys are still like under six, five, but for, from your guards, that's pretty valuable to get that on top of all the other stuff they're bringing. Yeah. Those guys at the point of attack and and all over the court, just give Boston the kind of defense where like that shit wears on you over the course of a 48 minute game in February, let alone over the course of a four to seven game series, you know, in April, May or June. So they're built for it. Let's talk heat, which I know you want to do. So they, they've actually gone rolling again since they, they had that slide and, and, you know, Spolstra and Haslam both wanted to fight Jimmy Butler. Um, since then, they've won at Boston, at Chicago, then at Toronto without Butler on the second night of a back-to-back. They were down 13 at one point in the third quarter. That was obviously Lowry's homecoming in Toronto. Um, they've got the defense. They have playoff makeup in a way. They scrap. They've got the shooting and they've got the movement, but I'm not sure they have the half-court offensive goods. I, I was actually surprised that their half-court offense is top 12. I honestly didn't think that. I thought it would be closer to bottom 10. Um, but like they haven't used the Lowry band pick and roll that I think we all expected, you know, Lowry's arrival would help them diversify that offense a little bit. I don't think they've gone to that as much as I thought they would. Maybe they're saving a bit more of that for the playoffs. I don't know. You're the one that called them fraudulent as the one seed. I was more just doing that to get your goat though, yeah. but no, listen, I mean, I know it's remained a topic of contention here on pound the rock over the last couple of years but as you know i was highest on this team the year they ended up making the final like the year i believed in the most was the year they made the finals you mean Obviously. the year they were bubble frogs <laughs> all right all right the, ga- hey, the games were played what happened happened i'm not as high as on them now as i was then but i still think they were good enough to get it done i don't like i don't think it's out of the realm possibility but you have the stronger opinion one way or another on this team and so that's what i'm curious about why why do you believe whether you said it half-heartedly or wholeheartedly, why do you yeah. believe that they might be or are frauds as the top seed in the Eastern Conference? Um, no, I, that, that was putting it strongly. I don't think they're frauds. I just don't. Like, if I think we're probably just talking about four teams today, right? And yeah. so I would put them fourth if I was ranking the teams that, in terms of like their likelihood of winning the conference. Their defense is 100% legit. I have very few qualms or questions about that end of the floor offensively is it's just hard to say because they're such a confounding team right uh especially in this respect like their two best players are non-entities from beyond the arc as in they don't just shoot three as poorly they don't shoot them at all they have another starter in pj tucker who has actually shot the three very well this season on balance, but has done so on very low volume and has really struggled with his shot in recent weeks after a red hot start to the season. And who we saw in the playoffs last year, 
opposing defense was totally ignored and treated as a complete non-shooter. So that's three-fifths of their starting lineup ostensibly hurting the spacing more than they're helping it. And then you have the release valve in that lineup uh, in Duncan Robinson. And the important thing with him is that defenses treat him, obviously, like the, you know, the, the terrifying gunner that they've known him to be in the past. But he's still only hitting like 36% from deep, which is basically league average. He's lost some of his minutes this year, too. Which is like, you know, if he's only hitting 30, 36% of his threes and he's giving a lot back on defense, like he is one of the few weak links in that Miami defense, then, yeah, I think there there may come a moment where they have to ask themselves, like, can we keep this guy on the floor? And yet for all that, they, they are 11th in three-point attempt rate and first in three-point percentage, which is why, to your point, they're still knocking on the door of like the top 10 in half-court right. offensive efficiency. And, you know, also like the fact, obviously, that Jimmy Butler is a tremendous two-point scorer and both he and the team as a whole get to the free throw line a lot and they run these ornate movement sets with split cuts and and flex action, like things that that can turn defenses inside out. But I do think, I do think the half-court offense is still a concern uh, just because they don't get many shots at the rim. They're pretty light on like individual advantage creation. If you think about it, like you get it from Jimmy just because of his strength, but Lowry doesn't really do that for you at this point. Like he's not attacking without a screen, right? Like he's not putting a ton of pressure on the rim or beating guys off the bounce. Um, He's putting pressure on you, like with his ability to be a pull up jump shooter. But I still think in terms of, like what you would want from a playoff half court offense. I think that the advantage creation isn't quite up to par. Um, So they're just like heavily three point dependent. And I think some of the guys they rely on for that three point shooting aren't guys you necessarily want to rely on in a postseason setting. Right. You don't think Max Struess is winning you a game come May? I mean, I don't know. That's the thing. Like (laughs) maybe yes. Like I would have said coming into the season, like that depth is kind of a big concern for this team. And it's turned out to be a massive strength with, you know, between Struess and Gabe Vincent. Gabe Vincent's awesome, by the way. I actually think like he, is he healthy right now? I don't even know, but. Uh, He played on Sunday against the Raptors, I think. Didn't he? I don't know. He he would have been thinking of Caleb Martin. Well, all these yeah, guys. Caleb Martin's been great too, right? Like, yeah. um, but I think Vincent should and is going to be part of the playoff rotation. And I actually don't have too many questions about him because I think on both sides of the ball, he's been great this year. Um, and he brings a little bit more than those other guys uh, in terms of like playmaking and stuff he can do off the dribble. But yeah, like Struce Martin, um, like I, I just. Oladipo even, right? Like, man, he runs hot and cold. Like, he had an incredible game against the Raptors where he, I think it was like five of seven, five of eight from three, like hit one from 35 feet out, just like a total heat check. Like, that, that's a huge wild card for them. But then it's, I just don't feel super comfortable or confident with those guys being like an important ingredient to what Miami has to do on offense. Even Hero, right? Hero's been great this year he's been one of their best three-point shooters um hitting like 39 percent on high volume like obviously a very important shot creator for them and to this point i think they've done obviously a good job of like protecting him on defense but 
there are going to be times against like the elite of the elite where it becomes a lot harder to hide him at the defensive end. And I just think it's, it's, I know like adding Lowry addressed some of this, but it's still in part a lot of the same questions that I've had about them over the last two years where the guys they rely on at the offensive end take stuff off, off the table defensively. And I also think they represent an interesting counterpoint to like Boston and Philly where depth has been key for them and you wonder how much that's going to matter. Uh, and for them, it is kind of about the nine through 12 guys, right? Like it'll, yep. it'll be interesting to see how or if they pair that rotation down uh, and what rotation they settle on um, or if they do settle on a rotation, you know, as opposed to just mixing and matching because they have options. But I feel like, you know, not, not having a set rotation in the playoffs can kind of be like a blessing and a curse, right? Cause it's like you have options if one guy or two guys aren't performing or if you just need to tailor like your rotation to a specific matchup, but then, you know, you don't, you don't wind up in that situation where you don't have a set rotation. If there aren't some questions about the reliability of the guys in your rotation. So, yep. Um, I just don't know. I think another, obviously we're talking about a guy like Jimmy Butler is a great player. So it's, I don't think him being their best player is necessarily holding them back, but I do think when the teams are as close to as evenly matched as you know we believe they are and as these top four are i do think the fact that their best player is the worst of the best players of those four like i do think that matters you know when it is this close between two teams if you were say going um between Giannis and Tedekumpo, jason tatum joel Embiid, and jimmy butler i think based on where all those guys are in their career i don't think it's a stretch to say jimmy butler's pretty clearly the fourth guy there you know and I think that matters when that when it's when it's this close when we've got matchups that in a lot of cases some of the the way these teams will mix and match it will go seven games. I think that could hold Miami back. You know that a lot of times in a best of seven scenario when it goes seven for the most part the team with the best player usually comes out on top usually in an NBA setting and I'm not sure if in any of those matchups the Heat can confidently go into and say we've got the best player on the floor tonight. They don't. And again, that's not that's not even a knock on Jimmy. It's more so the, the, the best players on these other three teams are really damn good. And even Tatum, like I said, has taken that full-blown superstar leap this year. That matters. And look, even if you wanted to stretch it out in some pie-in-the-sky scenario where like the Nets, you know, with KD and Kyrie right now, just like figure it out and, and become something close to the force we thought they could be at the beginning of the season, even if you threw them into the mix, then obviously Jimmy's not KD either. Like it... I think that is part of what will hold them back. Even when I mentioned like not being quite as high on them as I was a couple of years ago when they ended up making the finals. I, I was pretty confident that year that uh, Jimmy Butler could be the best player in the East playoffs that year. I don't think he can be a top three or four player in the East playoffs this year. And, and yeah, I think that could bite them. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty close between him and Tatum, but yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the, the defense is incredible, and that gives them a chance, right? Um, yep. And and I, they, they have interesting ways, I think, of of protecting the weak links at that end of the floor. Like one thing I feel like is cool that they do is like with Robinson, especially. Obviously, they switch a lot of stuff, but they will. They're also selective about their switching. Like they will want to avoid switching Robinson into a bad matchup. And so one thing they'll do sometimes is like 
they will switch and then they'll immediately blitz to make sure that that guy gives the ball up and then they'll reset their matchups. One thing they sometimes do is like they'll have Robinson hedge to stay out of that switch, but then someone else will take his guy, like whether it's on the roll or on the pop so that he doesn't have to make this difficult recovery, whether it's out to a shooter or whether it's to the guy rolling, they'll have a lot of times it's Bam who's either stepping up to take the guy on the roll or even coming all the way above the break to, to pick up the shooter. And then Robinson has this like easier recovery where he either just like goes to the corner or he's picking up the guy in the dunker spot. And I think that's like a really interesting way of shielding him, right? Like you keep him out of the bad switch and then you don't force him into that recovery either. Um, they've been, I think they've been really good when they, when they've sort of run uh, that style of defense and, and they have a ton of different styles of defense that they run, obviously like playing zone is another way they shield those bad defenders. Um, so we know they can do it and we've seen them do it before, right? Like their defense during that run to the finals was excellent despite giving huge minutes to, to Robinson and hero. So we know they can do it, but I just, I still do have these questions um, like comparing it to Boston, for instance, right. And like those inverted pick and rolls that we just talked about, even though they have these sort of ways of trying to shield those guys, I don't have nearly as much confidence in their ability to do that. Uh, right, nor given, should you. Given the guys that they're playing where like they, they're going to have guys on the floor who are attackable and no amount of chicanery is going to make up for the fact that they can't do what Boston can do and just switch those inverted pick and rolls and live with the result, right? Like they, yeah. they have to get creative and that, you know, even if it works a lot of the time, it still puts a strain, right? And it's still going to, it's still going to cause, I think, more breakdowns than it would otherwise. So, um, I, I have faith in Eric Spolstra's chicanery, maybe more than any other coach in the league, but you know, you can't turn water into wine. Can't turn chicken turds into chicken salad. Wow. Listen, don't try to get a rise out of Eric Spolster, man. He's not going to fucking fight you. <laughs> you know what? I think he might, to be 100% honest. All right. I, I think, are we, are we all heated out? Yes. All uh, right. Let, let, bottom line, I guess, pithy summary. Uh, I, I don't actually think they're entirely fraudulent, but I have more questions about them than I have, I think, about the other teams in this mix. Well, Wolfon's even giving the pithy summary of his own long summaries now. Instead of letting me do the pithy summary. That's how you know he's recharged and refreshed and ready to rock for the stretch run because he's given his own pithy summary. Anyway, we're going to take the break, come back, talk Bucks and Sixers. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Scores YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. The Bucks, Wolfon, the defending champion Milwaukee Bucks, the team uh, that you mentioned about 20 minutes ago, you thought had the cl- the best case to being considered or at least they were the closest thing to a full-blown juggernaut in this conference i agree with you i think a big part of that uh with all due respect to the rest of their team and how good they can be on the top end is the fact that Giannis and Setacumpo 
is that much better, I think, than everyone else. And that's including in a year where Joel Embiid, you know, is having this just incredible, incredible season again. Giannis is that good. Um, and, you know, I talked about on the Heat side, like not being able to say they have the best player on the floor in any of these matchups and how that can hinder them when it's that close. Well, the Bucks can go into every single matchup in the East pretty damn confident that they have the best player on the floor every night and in a, in a seven game situation. So there's that. Um, there's the fact that when they've been like when their best three players have been healthy this year, they've been pretty damn good. They've dropped the ball here and there, but for the most part, they've been pretty damn good. I think drew holiday. I mean, I know I don't have to tell you this cause you wanted him uh, on the all-star team above James Harden, but I think drew holiday has quietly had an incredible year and is still an absolute two way stud Middleton, who was an all-star, <laughs> I don't think necessarily deserved it, but is still a very capable player, obviously. And, you know, any doubts about whether he can get it done in the playoffs were obviously squashed last year when, despite the overall efficiency at some points, when it mattered and when he, they needed him to get a shot or make a shot, he did it in the finals to boot. So, um, Brooke Lopez is back now too. Like there, things are coming together, I think, at the right time for them. And this is a team, maybe more than any of the other teams we're talking about today, I think the team least concerned with seeding, with who the matchup is, with whatever. I think they're the team that should be the most confident and just let's just get to the playoffs, be healthy, and we can beat anyone in this conference. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, apart from the Giannis point, which I feel like is maybe a tad bit overstated. Like, yeah, if you're asking me to rank the players in the East, I'm probably putting him number one. But... I would have said that about him in 2019 and 2020 as well. And like, I think he's become a better player since Ben, but I think it's like, I don't think he is like head and shoulders above Joel Embiid at this point. I feel like there's a universe in which he could be the best player in a series. And yet another player like Joel Embiid or Kevin Durant, um, or, you know, if you take it back to 2020, like he was still the best player in a vacuum in like the heat. Bucks matchup, but like maybe there's another team or another player who can still get the better of him in a series. I thought it was I, interesting. We're, we haven't talked about Philly yet, but like that the game they played whenever that was last week, uh, we didn't really see Philly break out the ace up their sleeve and like put Embiid on Giannis, right? Which was interesting to me. Like, I still think they have that card to play. Um, and I'm curious to see like how that would go and kind of what it would mean, I guess, for like the rest of their defense and like how it would tilt the balance um, of like, you know, the Brooke Lopez matchup, for instance, and things like that. But like, I think they still have that card to play, which I, I think could be pretty interesting, but yes, Giannis is a Trump card. Obviously. I'll say one thing about your, your comment about him not being head and shoulders above Embiid. I, I get what you're saying, like maybe in totality, and even if you watch this, this the way this season's gone. The reason I do think he's head and shoulders above him in this, in whether it's a one game setting or in a playoff series or when the game's on the line, is because for me, whenever it's that close between two guys um, at a star level, I'll always take the guy that uh, like impacts the ball more. And I look, I know that Embiid is far from a traditional, but he has the ball in his hands a lot. But I still think that. Giannis's skill set is more conducive to impacting the game for larger stretches and controlling the game for larger stretches. I think Giannis can control and run an offense more often than Joel Embiid can. Like, and I think that matters when it's that close. 
yeah. Like, I mean, as, I much think- as, as much as Joel Embiid, again, yes, the offense does flow through him a lot. Joel Embiid is not a point center by any stretch of the imagination. Giannis can't be like, to me, that does matter. Well, when it's uh, that close. Okay. Yeah. I mean, on both ends. In, in transition, obviously, huge advantage, Giannis. Like, even though Embiid does bring the ball up the yeah. floor some of the time, obviously, in the open floor, Giannis is basically the Bucks point guard, and he's like the most terrifying force in the entire league, like getting ahead of steam, going downhill. In a half court setting, I think Embiid is better at creating his own offense than Giannis is. So, I mean, you you can, I guess, look, you can slice it up in any number of different ways, like playmaking, probably give the edge to Giannis. Uh, Shooting, I would certainly give the edge to Embiid. And post-scoring Embiid, like it's, I I think you slow the game down and offensively, like I'm not necessarily saying advantage Giannis. Like if you, if you take transition out of it, which obviously you can't, that's a big part of the game, but (laughs) I mean, there, there are, there are people that will tell you, you can almost take that out of it in the playoffs. I don't subscribe to that theory fully, but I do think that's, that's very over, that's overblown. Right. It is, it is, um, a lesser component of offenses in the playoffs, but it is nowhere near obsolete in the playoffs. I'm just saying if that's the thing you're boiling it down to as like the tiebreaker between the two Mm -hmm. guys, then I think think it's closer conversation to be had than, than the way that you're presenting it. Cause I think again, in terms of like self-creation, I'd give the nod to Embiid over Giannis, but that's really neither here nor there. I think the point to me is the Bucks, as a team just have like the fewest variables and the fewest factors that I could see derailing them um, than any of these teams, right? Like I, I think uh, the margin for error is wider for them than it is for anyone else. Uh, and obviously we, they've done it before. And that's, that's not just like our confidence in them being able to say, well, we've seen them do it before, but it's their own confidence in like themselves and in what they run, knowing this can work. We've seen it work. We've done it before with basically this exact same group, you know, not to the, the loss of PJ Tucker too much, right. but like. But, and to your point, that was like their own belief in their ability to get it done and in the system and, and their options was a question mark until they got it done last year. Like that was something they had to confront. So to that point, that does matter. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you wanted to concern troll, you could point to the fact that like their defense hasn't really been championship caliber this season. I think they're 14th in the league in defensive efficiency right now. I'm not worried about that. I I honestly would worry more about their offense than their defense, even though they're fourth on offense and 14th on defense. Uh, and, and I mean, worry probably isn't even the right word. It's more like if one side of the floor is going to be their downfall, I think it's more likely to be the offensive end, uh, because I think their defense at top gear is still going to be an absolute beast. Um, and, and like, especially with Brooke back and looking pretty Brookish so far, um, I just think they have their base back and, we we know how incredible they can be just running that base. And now with like all the wrinkles that they can throw in, the variations and the the different things that they've spent now the last two regular seasons experimenting with, whether it's switching or hedging, um, like they they are very practiced at playing other styles of defense and they're 
are a lot of different looks now that they can throw at a team. And, and what I think is interesting and what kind of works about it is their help principles are like basically the same, no matter what coverage they run. Um, you know, obviously when early in the season, when they were putting two on the ball a lot, they got very used to those rotations and especially like tagging from the weak side. And now it's like you watch them in Brooks back and they're playing that drop. Although I don't think they're dropping him quite as deep as they have in the past. Like they're still having that weak side tag come over. And that sort of allows Brooke, like even when he was dropping to, to focus on containing the ball a little bit more and maybe be less worried about conceding the advantage and like letting the role man get behind him. You know, you look at them on drives, like the help comes on drives, even when they switch, like they're not just like playing it one-on-one, they're they're using aggressive stunts and digs and guys stepping up from the baseline. Um, they, they really want to lock down the entire paint. And so if you look at the numbers, they're fifth in terms of limiting opponent rim frequency. But if you look at the four teams ahead of them in that stat, those teams all give up a ton of shots from floater range, whereas the Bucks are seventh in terms of limiting shots from the short mid-range, which is basically like the area between uh, the charge circle and the free throw line. So if you take like paint shots in totality, they're number one by like a pretty significant margin uh, in terms of limiting shots. So it's not just about protecting the rim. It's like the whole painted area that they want to keep teams out of. And they do that better than anybody. And so we know what they're going to give up by playing that style of defense. They'll give up the pick and pop. Uh, they'll give up, you know, pull up mid rangers. Um, and like when, when the guards aren't super attached going over screens, they're, they're going to give up pull up threes and they're, they're going to live with getting put in rotation and giving up some open catch and shoot jumpers when, when the skip passes happen uh, or when they're scrambling and just can't catch up to the ball. But I think what, you know, what they're taking away and what they're going to make very difficult is like, A, they're going to make it really hard for your big man to finish on the roll. And they're going to make it like next to impossible for a pick and roll ball handler to get all the way to the rim. And I think as much as like there's some overhelp sometimes that opens things up that wouldn't otherwise be there. I just think at the end of the day, I really trust them to find the right balance and to help and recover effectively. And Honestly, in general, I just like trust the math, which we have seen yep. for years work out for them in the long haul. So I, I, I'm not really worried about their defense not being championship caliber when it's not cut in time. But I don't know. What do you think about their offense? Because I think it, it's not as big a problem as it's been in years past. There's still kind of a lack of high level ball handling. Yeah. You know, beyond Holiday, obviously. And I think that's a big reason why, like, if you look at Holiday's on-offs this season, yeah. they're ridiculous yeah. because behind him, um, it's just, there, there's just not a ton there in terms well, of... Well, that's, that's what I was going to say. If you, like, he's been immensely valuable, you know, to their success this year and obviously in the past as well. But I don't know if that's... Ne- as great as that is for him and as great as he's been, I don't know if that's necessarily a long-term recipe for success. Like, I don't know if relying that heavily on Drew Holiday in 2022, as good as he is, is what you want to be ta- like talking about for a team going into the playoffs as a contender. And even Giannis, for as improved um, or like as refined, as more polished of an overall playmaker as he is compared to even last year or two years ago, mm-hmm. certainly, I still don't view him 
specifically as necessarily like in and of himself a championship level initiator or creator. Like I don't think anyone would call him that as much as he's a championship level superstar as a whole. As an initiator, I wouldn't see him like that. And so you need Drew Holiday to essentially like fill that gap, right? And fill that hole. I think he's done a pretty good job of it this year, but I still... And it sounds ridiculous to say because we just watched him, I guess, be good enough last year and watched them be good enough to do it last year. Well, but, but this is the thing. Like their offense very nearly wasn't good enough right. to do it last like, year. Do, do you and remember only, how ugly it was at times throughout yes. the playoffs? And even in that series against Phoenix? like, And that, that's what I'm saying. Like, okay, it was, barely, it was barely good enough. Their offense right. was barely good enough to get it done last year. And that was with their defense being like historically good. So... That's the thing. Like, yeah. and I think their offense is actually better now than it was last year. And even last year, like their offense shouldn't have been as bad as it was. Like that required, especially like holiday and Middleton to have some like really horrible shooting games. And for holiday yeah. who like, it, you know, everyone's like talking about his jump shooting, like he's shooting 41%, I think on pull up threes this year, but he was basically there last year too. And I was going into the playoffs being like, very full of Bucks optimism because I thought, okay, well, like their guards are good enough now. They have the the pull up jump shooting threat. Giannis doesn't have to be on the ball as often. They're going to be fine. And then Holiday went and had like forty eight percent true shooting in the playoffs, and they and they won anyway. But um, I think that's the concern is like if that happens to them again. Yes, I'm still confident in their defense, but is their defense going to be as good as it was last postseason? That's still an open question to me. That leads me to my question then for you, which is, and maybe this leads us into talking about Philly. I'm not sure what your answer is, but which of the teams at the top of the East, or even not necessarily at the top of these, I don't know, maybe you think it's Brooklyn randomly or Toronto, I don't know, but which team in the East right now do you think is best equipped or has the best chance to beat Milwaukee four out of seven? Philly. Okay, so perfect segue because that's the one team we haven't talked about yet at the top, so let's close it out with them. Off the air, we, you know, in texting back and forth while you're on your hiatus there, especially right after the deadline, yeah. we exchanged messages back and forth. I'd say in that first seven to 10 days after Harden's debut, where we both expressed confidence in, yeah, it's a wrap. Philly's winning the East. We both expressed that confidence. Now, obviously, there was a bit of hyperbole and it was early, but yeah. I think it's very safe to say we are not as confident in the Sixers now as we were in that first seven to 10 day stretch after they um inserted Harden into the lineup fair to say for you well yeah I mean and and the thing was like you can go back to the podcast that we did right after the deadline where I was like you know obviously the the one big unknown and big question mark here is like which version of Harden are we getting and if Harden comes out you know in his first couple games in Philly and looks like vintage Harden um, you know, the fat suits come off and, and he's recommitted himself and looks like James Harden again, then yeah, I think this is probably the team to beat in the East. And for the first like three, four games, he looked like that guy. I mean, he looked like something close to peak Harden. And that was the point at which we were talking and being like, I think this is probably the team to beat. And since then it's been pretty much what we saw from him in Brooklyn this year, where there are high highs, but low lows. The defense is very, very bad. And 
it's, you know, that maybe his health is a bit of a concern. The burst clearly isn't there. He's not getting to the rim as often, although he's now just like piling up free throws at a ridiculous rate, which makes, you know, all, the conversation we had at the beginning of the season where we were like, what is happening with James Harden's free throw rate? Are, you yeah. know, are the new rules completely tanking his value? Yada, yada, yada. He's like getting to the line at an egregious rate in Philly. But I think it's been pretty up and down. Um, and so it's like, I, I was expecting like those answers to come in short order. And it hasn't really worked out that way because it looked like we were getting peak Harden. Uh, and now it seems like what we were just getting was him at the crest of a wave, and he has sort of continued to ride uh, the ups and downs, and it's, it's not entirely clear where we stand with him. But I also want to say, just a, a brief segue here, because I, I've been listening to the pod. I heard you taking a little pot shot while I wasn't here to defend myself. Was I right. taking a pot shot or was I, read, or was I reading uh, fan shout-outs that were taking pot shot out to you? You piggybacked on that shout-out, on nice. that comment. Sounds you like You took me. a pot shot. And I don't even care. I just want to say, I stand by my Harden All-Star take 100%. And I would have stood by it even if he'd continued playing the way that he played in his first few games in Philly because we were talking about what had happened in the season up to that point. And... I'm sorry to say, like, James Harden up to that point, to me, had not been as good or as impactful this season as Drew Holiday had been. I still feel that way. And, like, does that mean in a vacuum that Drew Holiday is a better or more impactful player than James Harden? No, not necessarily. Doesn't mean that he is going to be a better player than James Harden this postseason. It just means that at the point where we were making our picks to decide who was going to be an all-star this year, uh, I thought 100% Drew Holiday was more worthy than Harden was, and so I stand by that take. Look, I'll I'll, I'll let you have that. I'll I'll even let you take a victory lap on that because, as far as I'm concerned, Alexei Pokashevsky looking like an NBA player makes me feel immune to all prediction related slander this season. So I'll I'll let you have a victory lap on Harden. Mm-hmm. I'll I, let I, you. I permanently- I'll let you stand by. Uh, your take that Fred VanVleet's better than Trey Young. I'll let whatever whatever we debated this year. I'll let you have it all. As long as I get to uh, just bask in the glow that is Alexei Pokashevsky's February 5th to April 5th in a lost season in OKC. No, uh, I, I think I have to permanently ban victory laps from this podcast after how poorly that Celtics victory lap went. After you had to walk it back with a lap of defeat. Uh, I think The moonwalk moon um, lap around the track. No, but listen, I, I, think you, I think you can argue that the Sixers should win the East just based on the roster and the top yeah. end talent, right? Like we talked about the Bucks half-court offense. Philly's half-court offense should be much better than Milwaukee's, right? And it frankly should be better than Boston's or Miami's also. Like this yeah. should be... Yeah, they have Joel Embiid and James Harden on the same team. Absolutely, it should be. Um, And I think... You know, I mentioned like the the matchup against Milwaukee, which came down to like a final possession, right? It was super duper close. And they didn't have Embiid guarding Giannis for the majority of that game. And Giannis was having like a pretty enjoyable time, like shoot, <laughs> like going up against Matisse Thibel and Tobias Harris and, you know, Paul Millsap, basically. Uh, and I feel like it's it's not like a panacea, right? But I do think when push comes to shove, probably the Sixers' best defensive option 
is going to be to have Embiid be the primary on Giannis and then to have Thibel. Thibel's an interesting piece that we can talk about a little bit, but like to have Thibel like basically guard, quote unquote guard, you know, Brooke Lopez, yeah. but more but more realistically like ignore Brooke Lopez and just muck <laughs> stuff up all over the floor. But I think their their top level might be higher than Milwaukee's. It's just that Milwaukee's baseline is way higher than theirs is. And honestly, like you could probably say Boston and Miami's baselines are higher than than their baseline is too. Like I just think they are they're like the most boomer bust yes, of these I th- teams. I think that they are of the four teams we've talked about today, they are by far to me the most susceptible to a first round defeat. And yet of the four teams we've talked about today, by far have the highest ceiling that they can reach. And yeah, that, they're the definition of boomer bust. And I think it's going to be fascinating because uh, look, there are literally already reports that, um, that some Sixers players and oh gosh, I wonder who are at odds with Doc Rivers. All right. And that it might lead to him being out of there. So yeah, like in general, the, the next few weeks, couple months, perhaps depending on how far they go is going to be fascinating in Philly. And again, I will I will remind you that Harden actually didn't end up signing that that one year to picking up that option yet. I know everyone's just assuming because he said he was going to and he just didn't get it done in time, but that he was still planning to do it, that it's like, okay, he'll take care of that and it'll be fine. I would expect that to happen. But in in the NBA, especially, if something's not actually signed, sealed, and delivered, don't count your chickens before they've hatched. So until until things actually do go right or the you know fairly well for them this spring and he picks up that option i'm just not even willing to go there yet either like there's a lot to watch in philly if this does go sideways yeah so worth pointing out they're plus 15 per 100 possessions with harden and Embiid on the floor <laughs> stupid good um and, and the defense in those minutes has actually been really good uh so that feels important uh, a bunch of questions i still have like you know obviously Embiid and harden both pretty dependent on free throws and you wonder i mean it's not like that's going to dry up in the playoffs but like are they going to get to the line a little bit less in the playoffs because a little bit less could mean the difference between them advancing or not advancing when the margins are as razor thin as they're going to be in a lot of these matchups um you know despite the fact that the defense has been good in those hardened and Embiid minutes i i'm still not like totally confident in them defensively um just you know if we're talking eye test harden has not looked good to me like whether it's like they they try to have him fight over screens when they're defending one five pick and rolls and that has not gone particularly well like uh i think the phoenix game is the one i would single out and say like he really got exposed defensively in that game like getting over screens was a disaster when they switched with him, like, you know, the, the Suns were just hunting him on switches anyway. So it's not like there's a particularly good way to hide him against elite offenses. I mean, like they can, they can zone up or they can do a lot of pre-switching, but um, he's still going to be a clear weak spot out there. And they're still going to have to figure out, you know, how do they want to defend the Harden and beat pick and rolls? Because the times when they've switched them, Harden's just gotten torched on the back end. Right. Um, so I don't think that's really the answer. Um, no. And then and then you think about Thibel and how important he's going to be to that defense. 
And you just have to wonder, like, is he going to be able to stay on the floor? Because he is such a liability on offense. And I mean, I don't know. Like, they they can try and do stuff like use him as like a screener in pick and roll so that he's not just standing in the corner with like his defender uh, constantly having one foot in the paint, like just ready to muck anything up. Like they can involve him in the action. Uh, and that maybe makes the spacing a little bit easier to navigate. But like, I don't know that he has the skills as a role man to make that work. Like I know he's, he's a pretty good cutter. It's just, I don't know. But that's what to say if he like, okay, even if you're using him as a screener and he's not necessarily clogging the paint, it's like, I don't know, good defenses with good, coaches and like prepared teams i i feel like they'll find a way to still ignore him even as the screener and then as you mentioned he doesn't really have the skills to necessarily be the guy that's going to take advantage of like a four on three opportunity if they do ignore him as the screener. so yeah i guess it helps a little bit spacing wise but i i don't even necessarily think that's that great of a solution it's kind of like the lesser evil i guess so then you start thinking about like okay if he can't stay on the floor who's taking his place and it just feels like guys like George Niang and Danny Green are crucial in a way that would make me feel pretty uncomfortable if I was a Sixers fan. Like, uh, yeah, the, the depth in general is just pretty rough. And it's hilarious to me that the backup center conundrum is just rearing its head again. And we joked about this on, on our trade deadline pod about like, oh, they got hardened, but they traded away Andre Drummond. And maybe they're just going to be screwed for a backup center again. And I was like, no, no, they'll find somebody on the buyout market. They'll be fine. They and found they, the wrong guy. And then the guy they picked was DeAndre Jordan. And guess like, what? Doc still loves him. I mean, it's... Uh, and the other thing is like, you would have thought that even if the backup center option wasn't great, just being able to have James Harden on the floor when Embiid was on the bench would have been enough. Right to keep those lineups afloat. And that has not been the case. They're underwater again. Um, and I know it's only going to come down to like, you know, in the biggest games, like, you know, six to 10 minutes. Guess when their playoff games have been lost in the six to 10 minutes, Joel Embiid hasn't played. Yeah. Or the three minutes in the case of that game seven, that they lost by two points when they lost yeah. his three minutes on the bench by 12. Like, yeah, it's, I don't know. I, I I don't know what the solution to that problem is. I mean, they, there have been moments this season where they've gone small with like Niang at center, for instance. Um, and I'm sure in some matchups that can work out okay. In uh, some, obviously not. But uh, I just, I don't think DeAndre Jordan's the answer. It doesn't seem like Paul Millsap's the answer. Like I'm, I've always been a big Millsap guy, but he is washed. I'm sorry to say. I just can't believe like this is the one problem they can't seem to solve and it might be their undoing yet again. Yeah, I can believe it and I think it's going to be really funny to talk about over the next little while unless you're a Sixers fan. Um, all right, we got to get out of here and I want to get to the fan shoutouts, but I want you to do me one favor, Wolf. I'm going to need a one-word answer from you, okay? And I understand matchups aren't set yet. You're very allowed to change your mind once the matchups are set and the bracket's mm-hmm. out. Based on everything we've talked about today, the Eastern Conference team you would pick today to be the East Finals representative. Bucks. Agreed. With that, going to do two fan shoutouts this week because we actually didn't have an episode last week, so make up for that. So the first fan shoutout is going to go to Brandon from New Jersey who goes from at Brandon, F-R-M-N-J on Twitter. Brandon actually never reached out officially, but 
uh, during the lead up to us having Trill on to talk Sixers. When, when we were teeing up the show, I did notice him in the mentions uh, shouting out the pod and uh, talking about how very good he thinks the pod is. So shout out to Brandon from New Jersey. Shout out to Josh De Silva, who's been a loyal listener every episode, originally from Canada, now lives in Germany, says Pound the Rocks, the best NBA podcast. I do want to also shout out the fact, so Josh is a big time sneakerhead and it's what I'm going to say is even if you're not necessarily into that, he's not just like a hype beast when it comes to like expertise um, related to sneakers and shoes and brands and stuff and like honest reviews and all that. He's really good. He's on YouTube uh, at Josh Dominic. So you can, uh, you can support a pound the rock fan by following him there. And also that's an excuse to reference the fact you should also be following the score on YouTube with all that out of the way. Wolf on episode one back with you in the saddle is under our belts, episode 232 overall under our belts. We're going to try as best we can uh, for the remainder of the season and playoffs to get back to two episodes a week, and that's going to start this week. So we will be back Friday to, I'm pretty sure, give our awards picks, and I think this year is good because I don't think it's as cut and dry as previous years. So there's some room for healthy debate and opinions there. But anyway, we'll be back Friday with that. Until then, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.